This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. It's Madam Adams, Cindy Adams from the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and I hope you read me. And if you don't, you can listen to me every Sunday from 1 to 2 on WABC 770 on the AM dial. Now, I'm going to say that a longtime judge recently told me the best thing about you can say about Biden is he's incompetent. So I decided to investigate Biden's hometown, where he came from, and what it's like there. And I said to someone, a friend, I said, I'm going to talk about Delaware. I'm going to see Delaware. The friend said, who's Delaware? I explained, listen, stupid, it's a state where great minds think of sending our migrants and it's also great for retirees, like maybe, we hope, Biden. Anyway, I started to study up and learn about Delaware. Here's what I learned. Delaware's main drink is dogfish head craft beer. The main dish, scrapple, slippery dumplings and fries. But with the fries, you shove ketchup. It comes with a cup of malt vinegar, whatever the hell that is. The main attraction in that state is Rehoboth Beach, which has a gas station, a nail salon, and a kebab stand. For anything else, you have to go out of state. It has no sales tax. It's El Cheapo. The dress code is sleeveless tees, which explains Mrs. Biden's 1950s crappy skirts with machine-imprinted flowers. Ah, to understand why Joe prefers his beach house to the White House, locals whom I knew told me one party alone only runs us. Basically, we're a small county. We're insular, we're arrogant, we're incompetent, we're Democrats, we became a state. Up for re-election is our Kathy McGinnis, who faced some charges after an audit. And there's Treasurer Colleen Davis, who was found driving with a suspended license. These are his identical quotes. Also, he told me, possibly due to excess sulfur, our tap water sometimes has a rotten eggs aroma. Plus, and this is a direct quote from an executive who lives there, it's interesting as to how Hunter's father handles his bills. That's an end quote. Settled in 1787, the first original state Middle of no place, no hills, no canyons, no celebrities, except they mention one VIP named Aubrey Plaza. Who? It has no international flights, no sightseeing, no sports team, no national park. 
The entire state is Highway I-95. It's nearest elegant dining, downtown Sea Caucus. Southern Delaware is called Slower Lower, and it's two blocks from Northern Delaware, which has tractors, hog calling, rural lifestyle, even ketchup. So why is Texas so big and Delaware so small? The all-wise answer is, who the hell knows? Their attraction is where F. Scott Fitzgerald partied, where Dead Poets Society filmed, where, they swear, everyone knows everything except where to find a guide. And the whole state shuts down at 5 o'clock. Not even the Delaware water gaps in Delaware. So prime sightseeing is its capital, Wilmington. Wow, right up there with Paris, Rome, London, and New York. A local barn bears the printed word Biden. A nearby lawn sign reads, Thank you, Mr. Trump. Excelling in contracts, corporations, and courts is Delaware. However, Schwarzenegger's thigh is larger than the whole state. What it has is beaches. It's big with beaches. Everyone talks about its beaches. You might call native Biden a son of a beach. Okay, we're going to go onward, if I can get onward from that, and we will talk about some other things. But I want to continue for one second on Joe Biden, who's absolutely my favorite. Joe Biden has a colorful family. His brother is possibly, possibly addicted to Elmer's glue. His son, Hunter, and may his tripe increase. Daughter Ashley, formerly married, is a social worker, also a fashion designer, plus the Delaware Center for Justice director, whatever that means. Meanwhile, she was just in New York, on the eastern island of New York, which is called Montauk, and is a good shot glass away from the Delaware Center for Justice. It was a wild party. She was dancing with the DJ Ole Benz. This grooving place is called Cell Rose. It has a heavy-duty bar, and Secret Service jammed the block of Elwood Avenue and accompanied Miss Biden, Joe's daughter, into the party. This charming daughter inhaled gin with cucumber juice, lime, and whatever and the not-so-secret service dude whose salary our taxes pay did the pouring for her. Okay? So let me go on to a few other things. A few porno romps ago, before doing it with Yeezy Pete Davidson and possibly some partridge in a pear tree, a sex tape got shopped around of Kim Kardashian doing it with entertainer Ray J. You remember that story. Anyway, recently came the story he needed a dentist, Ray J. Not sure this is urgent news, but Kim who may have auditioned every other profession, says she's now looking to date a doctor, but not 
a dentist. Okay, I will press on with some other things. Now, begun October 5, 1947, was the Actors Studio. It was in a West, and still is, 44th Gymnasium. It graduated Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Paul Newman, Ellen Burstyn, Dustin Hoffman, Jane Fonda, Joan Crawford, Bernie, Beatrice Arthur, Sally Field, and probably a partridge in a pear tree. To honor its 75th year, Al Pacino is appearing live October 27 at Uptown Broadway's United Palace. Plus, he will then scream his 1975 Oscar winner, Dog Day Afternoon. Al, who's in the book on, on the actor's studio, says, I was very young. My first audition was in their basement. He told me I got rejected from my first audition, but my friend later auditioned, and I, my heart pounding, fortunately got to sit upstairs in their one empty seat watching him. To try out again, which I did, took me six months. Continuing for what Al Pacino told me, actors and directors' units were called sessions, and nobody pronounced my name right. They said it was Al Pacini, Pacino. Eventually, he knew Strasberg well, and it was movie star Al Pacino who got Lee Strasberg into the Godfather movie. With all those celebrities, the actor's studio then was an entertainment show. This is him talking. He said Strasberg was actually a philosopher and a theologian. He taught that being an actor has real value, and he gave us insights throughout history about acting. He said that actors actually live lives of rejection and judgment, so it's good to know that there is some dignity about your choice which inspired you behind the idolatry, the fame, and the money. In 1980, Lee Strasberg's autobiography, which was from Doubleday and was titled Lee Strasberg, The Imperfect Genius of the Actors' Studio, was written by Cindy Adams, So I Know Whereof I Speak. Al Pacino now lives in California. He's taking a part, he's making a part fantasy, part reality film about a struggling Hollywood actor and director. And he says to me, you know, I love New York. I come back often. I do Broadway. I see my friends and I check out the life I once lived here. Said Al to me, you have to keep getting caught up. Listen, I had coronavirus. The pandemic has hit us all. I am a survivor. That's his quote. And me, I also am a survivor. I had coronas, and I am now coming up to a station break, and I will be back to you in another minute. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, now you've been listening to me enough. You're probably tired of me. I now am going to interview my longtime friend, Bill O'Reilly. As you know, there isn't a 20-minute 
span that goes by that he doesn't write another killing book. This is his 12th or 13th or 700th, I don't know what, but he's always killing somebody. However, he isn't killing me, so I am now going to introduce my next guest is Bill O'Reilly. Fifteen minutes have now passed, so it's time for another Bill O'Reilly book because he writes one every hour and a half. This is his twelfth. It's out this week. It's called Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity. What does that mean? You know what it means. You've been in the business longer than anybody else. Watch you yourself, know. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know how dangerous it is. So the reason I wrote about uh, this social history is because people, Americans, they don't understand that not only were Elvis Presley, John Lennon, and Muhammad Ali titans in the entertainment and sports world, but they changed American culture. And as a historian, I'm always looking at how we live now and how people in the past influenced that. And all three of these people did. They changed the whole landscape of the country. But the lethal danger of celebrity applies to any famous person now. You can't go out of your house. You're on a camera, a phone, cell phone camera. You walk out of your house, somebody's recording you. Um, people feel that you're a thing, not a person. They can uh, cut you up in the press, on social media. They can say horrible things about you. Um, you know, if you are going to go into this area, you are going to get attacked. And I don't know how many people understand the intensity of that. In the old days, people hid stuff. Nobody exposed a JFK's lifestyle or some of the bad boy movie stars like I remember an Errol Flynn. He had levels of protection years ago old-timers were just boozers is that why they were safe and they're they're not safe today because we didn't have all this well it was a different world then and the uh corresponding uh press basically in the entertainment industry did what it was told to do i mean there were people who were feared like hedda hopper a uh, big columnist who could make or break a career but the uh, studio heads, they basically said, look, if you say something bad about Rock Hudson, because everybody knew he was gay in the 1950s, you write that. We'll make sure that you never get another interview in your life. Yeah. And as far as JFK is concerned, I mean, you had the editor in chief of The Washington Post, Ben Bradley, going out on sailboats with the man. Yeah. I mean, it was there was corruption across the board. And it was no problem to protect people who were doing things that were, I don't know, immoral. Is that the word? It's a good um, word, yeah. If you were taking narcotics or, or drinking to excess, I mean, they wouldn't bother with that. Now, went, go ahead. Go ahead. No, uh, I, went to one, I went to a party once in Hollywood, and I was sitting next to Shirley MacLaine, and there were people, she was okay, but there were people putting their hands in a, a, in a big bowl, and I thought it was just candy. I don't think it was candy. They were helping themselves to pellets. They were helping themselves to pellets. And then one other thing. I was married to a comedian named Joey Adams, his first wife, and... 
Walter Winchell's wife were sisters. Now, in the days of Walter Winchell, he could make or break a president, is what he said to us. Sure. Walter Winchell was one of the most powerful people in the United States because he had the radio mic and the newspaper. Um, And these people knew it. And they were running all kinds of games. But now what's happened in the social media world is that tearing up a celebrity, destroying a person, and it could be a politician as well. It could happen to Brett Kavanaugh. Um, It's a blood sport. Yeah. It's a blood sport. So every allegation is a conviction. Every accusation, where's the due process on page one? Doesn't matter whether you did it or not. Doesn't matter. And and evil people know that, which is why our leadership, political leadership in this country, is weak. Because good, strong, honest people know not only are they going to get attacked, but their family's going to get torn up. And that keeps people from getting into the political arena. Well, remember the Kim Kardashian in Paris situation? I mean, you know, there's there's drugs, there's alcohol, there's social media running wild, like you're saying. It's insane personal stuff on the Internet and people making things up. Does that mean that because it's different now that all safety is gone and nobody is being held to account it's plain notoriety is that what we're going through pretty much i mean look i write about elvis presley john lennon and and muhammad ali those essentially the 1960s and extending into the 70s a bit no internet back then all right no no social media all three of those men were crushed lost control of their lives because they became so famous. Now, you don't even have to be near that level, all right? You can't go out of the house. There's a cell phone on you. Um, It is just insane what has happened. And so the uh, people, and some of them can survive it. Some of them are strong enough to get through it. But many of them aren't. And unless you have a strong support system, unless you have people who are really looking out for you, you're going down. Presley, Lennon, and Ali were all betrayed by people they thought were their friends or their family. All of them were betrayed. Your first, your first chapter, which I read and I couldn't put it down, was about Elvis, who'd been driving a truck and didn't seem to understand. What did he know? How, how did, what happened to Elvis? Well, Elvis Presley changes the culture in six minutes on the Ed Sullivan show. Yeah. And we went from a conformist post-World War II, uh, everybody looked the same, sounded the same, to a rebellious culture. And there's Elvis driving this with his swiveling hips and his uh, sneering and all the kids wanted to be like him. And then the pastors are saying that he's an agent of Satan. The parents are going nuts. Now, Elvis wins. The culture changes. And he becomes the highest paid, most sought after celebrity in the world. At the same time, 
He's managed by a thief, a crook, Colonel Tom Parker, who steals yeah. his money. Yeah. But Elvis didn't want to engage. He didn't want, he was overwhelmed by what was happening to him. So he let Parker handle everything. And Parker was not looking out for Elvis. Parker was looking out for Parker because he was a degenerate gambler. And he was just taking his money and, and putting him in vehicles where he shouldn't have been in and all of that. And it just blew. Elvis just lost control of his life. He was also not sophisticated, as so many of the people are. All of a sudden, they come up and they get betrayed by the people close to them that they thought they could trust. I understand that. But you do also, tell me, you do a lot of pages about Muhammad Ali, who, who was unprepared and was never the same afterwards. What's the story with Muhammad Ali? Well, Ali was a... Let's see what word I'm going to use here. Ali was a civil rights hero. He elevated the African-American community because of his charisma and his athletic skill. But he decided to partner up with the Nation of Islam. Yeah. Elijah yeah, yeah. Mohammed. Yeah. And yeah, Elijah yeah. Mohammed's son, yeah. Herbert Mohammed, yeah. became Ali's manager. Yeah. He did the same thing that Parker did. He took all the money. But not only that, he put Ali in the ring when Ali should not have been fighting. In Manila, the Philippines, and yeah. you know these people, yeah. the Marcoses, yeah. hosted this big fight between Ali and Frazier. The thriller well, from Manila. they killed yeah. each other. They almost killed each other, literally killed each other. And the doctor, Ali's doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, said to Herbert Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, you can't put him back in the ring for a year. That's how damaged the man is. They said he's fighting in four months. And that was the beginning of the destruction of Muhammad Ali's brain. So when I write Killing the Killers, uh, I'm, tell, I'm sorry, when I write Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity, it is lethal. His famous thriller from Manila fight against Joe Fraser almost killed him. And, and people stole him blind, and I know he was broken after that. I also have to ask you, you know, I can't go from person to person, but it's the book is so thrilling. Tell me some of these star, stars are isolated. What about Lennon? Well, that's what happened to Lennon. See, see Yoko Ono didn't steal Lennon's money or that, unlike... Unlike Presley and Ali, it wasn't a financial thing with Lennon, okay? Lennon, when he burst onto the scene in America in 1964 and changed the culture, the Beatles changed the culture into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which we have today, they were the spear point for that. Lennon was a gregarious guy. He was social. He was... You know, people wanted to hang with John Lennon. All of a sudden, when he meets Yoko Ono, he's gone. He's in the Dakota. Nobody sees him. He doesn't see his son, Julian. He's isolated. Ono controls everything he does. 
and he becomes addicted to heroin. Are you kidding me? And that's what broke up the Beatles, the heroin. Nobody knows all this. But why would you do that? I guess because he was in such pain because the celebrity overwhelmed him. They turned to drugs. Elvis did. So, I mean, this is what, again, the lethal danger of celebrity. So, listen, it gets down to are human beings always supposed nobody and never try to be something? In your view, they're always to be nothing? No, you have to be prepared. If you want to enter the arena of fame, you have to understand what is likely going to happen and then prepare for that. So you have to find somehow people you can trust. And you have to be very, very skeptical of going to places that are going to hurt you or dealing with people who are going to hurt you. Look, I'll give you a very vivid example. You and I both know there are major celebrities that want their picture in a paper every day. Yeah, I know. Every day. Yeah, I know. Okay? That's not going to turn out well because you then become a cartoon. You're not a person. You're a thing that can be attacked and taken advantage of. But this fame thing is addictive in itself. So if you want to have it, it's almost like training for the Olympics. You've got to train your mind. You've got to be disciplined. And it's not an easy thing to do. Okay. What about your lifestyle? You're a celebrity. Tell me what you, what you do. Well, I learned the hard way. So when I was uh, coming up in my career, I wanted to be famous. But not because I wanted a mansion or a Ferrari. I don't care about those stuff. I wanted, like in Cheers, everybody to know my name and respect my work. But I never, ever considered the downside and the unintended consequences of spouting political analysis to the world on a daily basis. I didn't say, as I should have, hey, O'Reilly, you know, millions of people are going to hate you, and some of those people are going to try to hurt you and your family. And that's exactly what happened. And I got through it because I fought like hell And I changed, but I was never one, as you know, because you've known me a long time, to go to the parties or to hang out or to do that kind of stuff. I never did drugs in my life. I don't drink. I'm I'm like boring. I'm the most boring guy in the world. But even so, I was shocked when they came at me. And but I changed everything. And now, I mean, you know, I pay millions of dollars to attorneys. To protect me, if I see anything, boom, it's, uh, I'm not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. I'm nice and respectful of people, but I can't sit in Yankee Stadium. I can't sit among the folks. I'd like to, but I can't. Uh, John David Chapman might be just right around the corner. He's the guy who killed Lennon. And it's not, I'm glad that I succeeded but it's not the greatest lifestyle in the world. Well, the the upside is you get the best table in a restaurant, but I do understand what you're saying, and I don't know 
where we're going and what the future is going to hold. Your book is terrific, Killing the Legends, The Lethal Danger of Celebrity, but I'm not sure it's going to cure the people who are eager. It's just not. No, but at least I've given them the truth. I've told them the truth, and that's my job. Well, I thank you. You're always telling everybody the truth. You now owe me dinner. I've had enough of you, and I'm going to get, the minute I hang up, I will get your 13th book by mail. I'm sure of it. I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks. Well, we're, we're working people over here. We work hard, so there'll be another killing book next year. And Thanks, I'm looking sweetie. forward to dinner because I know I'll get the best table if you're around. You'll also get the check. Thank you, honey. <laughs> okay, Cindy. Nice to talk to you. Bye. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I am in the mood to burble. I'm going to burble about assorted things, so pay attention to me. First of all, Beverly Hills. For some reason, although New York has its problems, there's a big contingent from Beverly Hills moving here. Why? I don't know why. That town is so rich, its food baskets go to whoever has only one swimming pool. And their unemployment line does a free car wash. Watch, watch. New York City's influx of illegals will soon get a complimentary caviar bar here. There. They are moving here. That's only in New York, kids. Only in New York. They are moving here. Now, here's some stuff from Telluride. It's blah, blah. But they are telling me already the Oscars are already decided. And that's not to be until next year. But they're already decided. So we can now start not caring earlier. Open mouths are telling me that Kate Blanchett will win for something called TAR. T-A-R. Brendan Fraser, in a 600-pound fat suit, will gobble up for the whale. And not yet up for any prize is that Oprah, who produced Sydney, an Apple TV doc about actor-activist Sydney Poitier, will be a winner. Look, it looks like to me everybody old hat is gearing up. Soon the Marx Brothers will get a special, and they've been dead for 40 years. Meanwhile, we got Hassan Minhaj's comedy thing, The King's Jester, which shot at Brooklyn Academy of Music. And he says, I do not want to be the king of comedy. I just want to be the prince of comedy. Yeah, which means what? He says, this is his identical quote. He says, I want to live while more talented people die around me. And this is a comedian, okay? Should you possibly think that's hilarious? His thing debuts this week. And a one word I want to tell you about election season, which is coming up. It seems apparent that many winners, born poor and honest, somehow managed to quickly overcome both difficulties. Wait, I'm going to talk to you about a man called Henry Schleif. Henry Schleif has been the producer on television and has been extremely successful. And he has run an assortment of cable programs. And he has now sent me a five-page letter on being upset 
about Kelly Ripa's new book. Kelly Ripa's new book is on People Magazine's cover. It is all over, and she is eager to sell her new book. This is from Henry Schleif. But he says she shouldn't be doing it. Regis Philbin, many considered a national treasure. And Regis Philbin, who is now gone and passed away a few years ago, he gave Kelly her first and only break in being his co-host. She wasn't a big name before. He gave her the shot. Now he says, this is Henry Schleif on his three-page letter to me, Regis got along with every one of his previous co-hosts. They loved him. He cared about his audience and being able to tell a story without the punchline being interrupted all the time by Kelly, who talks about herself or her family. It is the same complaint, he says, that you are seeing now in social media by fans of Ryan Seacrest, her now co-host, who, they say, gets interrupted occasionally by Kelly. He says that he is a longtime friend of Regis Philbin and that Regis Philbin came to him to see what his opinion was on having Kelly Ripa be his new co-host. So he has his own personal feelings about it. But he says, Kelly Ripa says publishing her first book, Live Wire, is about correcting the record. And she does so on topics including her complicated relationship with the longtime gone co-host, Regis Philbin. She says, he tells me, what I just wanted to put out there was the truth, says Kelly. She says, to have worked alongside the TV icon Regis Philbin, who died in 2020, was not an easy working relationship. It was unfair how Regis wanted to have a workmate forced on him and how he didn't react well. And she says, you hear people that talk about their truths I want to speak my truth. I want to say that I was not treated so well. It has been the privilege of my life to host live, even though I never saw myself hosting this show, and I didn't see myself hosting the show for 23 years. But it's unfair for Regis to have treated me the way he did because he felt like it was his show, and it was his show, and he thought he shouldn't have a workmate forced upon him. There is a common misconception, she writes, about the nature of these jobs on camera. I am in a unique working situation right now with Ryan Seacrest because we've had a 20-year friendship. But most people think that is everybody on TV, all friendly. That is very seldom the case. Make no illusions that there was this friendship I had with Regis Philbin. Yes, he liked me. 
He respected what I did on the air, but this was not an easy working relationship, she says. There seemed to be this pervasive narrative that somehow I abandoned our friendship. Now comes Henry Schleif, who was a friend of Regis Philbin, and he says to me, and he asks me to say it and to quote him, he says, Kelly Ripper became somebody as a result of Regis Philbin. Kelly Ripper became somebody as a result of being a co-host on his show. Kelly Ripper should have made this book an honor for Regis Philbin. Kelly Ripper should have put this book out as a reward to Regis Philbin, not one to make fun of him and to talk him down. This is from Henry Schleif, who was Regis Philbin's friend, and I am reporting this not from myself, but because Henry Schleif wanted to report it, and he wanted to say good, wonderful things, not just about Kelly Ripper, whom he likes and respects, but because he loved and adored Regis Philbin. And that's why I have done this. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. There's a couple of new ideas that maybe you should hear about. There's a new idea out from Keiko Aoki. She's the widow of the Benihana dynasty's Rocky Aoki. She has just launched a personal, private, luxury chef routine who preps meals for your home dinner parties, not by sending the food out cooked, but by having the chef come to your home and cook it personally and serve it. She says, you pay a fixed price per person. It's as simple as ordering a taxi. Well, I don't personally see a meter sticking out of a rump roast, but the idea is great. She says, my idea is for a professional chef for a dinner party. If you have four to eight people, my new online service will provide different foods to people, such as new American, Italian, Asian, Mediterranean, French, international, plant-based, vegetarian, and, of course, kosher, and, of course, Japanese. It's fresh ingredients delivered to your door two days before. Then the chef comes and does it. Then the sessions include cleanup. You can choose, she says, from the $90 per person or $140 per person. And if you go for the $140 per person thing, invite me. Another new thing is Linda Lavin. Her play is not right now in the Great Roundabout Theater, and it has the ungreat title, quote, You Will Get Sick. I do not like that title. I very much like Linda Lavin. I dislike that title. You will get sick. You will not get sick, as far as I'm concerned. She says, we will open November 6th. It's getting older, memorizing harder. 
I can't remember all the words I'm supposed to. I have an assistant because there's also a monologue. But schlepping back and forth from California where I got CV. Remember the play's title? Now I'm tested daily. Now I sit outside. Now I go to bed early. Now I don't go out much except once I went to see Billy Stritch in Birdland. But I have to be very careful of myself to do this show. Continuing on with what she told me, she says, Life is short. I have suffered disappointments, pain. I have given up negative influences now. I sit outside. I think. I pray. I care for myself. You know what it does? It takes work to get out of sadness. I'm off now for a few days to do a club date in London, but I am coming back to rehearsals, and as you know, we open again, as I said, November 6th. What I do now to keep myself up and alive, I take spiritual baths. I reach into positive thoughts. I keep hopeful. I stay away from negativity. I worry about being a celebrity. I worry about people taking out after me. Even if I am not the number one celebrity, I worry about people taking after me. You know what it does? It takes work to get out of sadness. I'm off now for a few days to do a club date in London. My husband of 16 years, I love very much. But what I must do to survive, celebrity takes a lot out of you. I now take spiritual baths. I reach into positive thoughts. I keep hopeful. I stay away from negativity. Also, she said, my husband and I have places in New York and in California and in Costa Rica and in Great Barrington. And if she has all that, what the hell has she got to be unhappy about in the first place? Anyway, go see her show. I don't want to repeat the title. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 